Well, hi everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I am at LACMO, which is Los Angeles County Museum of Art. It is, yes. <laughs> and very good. Wickedly, uh, we're we're staring at a video of a man kicking sand. Maybe he's digging a hole like a dog. I don't know. But we're in the Stark Bar of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. I'm having a glass of wine, in fact a second glass of wine because I caught the bus here and I'm catching the bus home and I'm allowed. And I'm with my new friend and publisher and I'm going to ask you the correct pronunciation of your name because you were introduced to me as Gemini Adams. That's correct. That is correct. <laughs> Whoever that was got it right. <laughs> it was Judy Prescott. Yep. But, I, but it's spelt like Gemini. Gemini. Yeah. So can I ask you... The story. <laughs> How come it's Gemini? Is that a reasonable it question? Is, it us? is, it is, it is. It's asked on many an occasion. Yeah, um, yeah. I always blame the fact that both my parents worked in the media um, in England. Uh, my mother was a journalist and my father was a TV director. <laughs> so they were, you know, a little out there in some ways. And they just, um, my mother just thought this was a really unusual name. I don't think she even had any understanding of what astrology was or star signs. I think she just saw the name somewhere. Um, and thought, oh, that's a, a pretty name. Yeah, um, but why the pronunciation? That's just how she decided because to use it. If you're a sort of, radio, I used to work in radio. Yeah. We were given pronunciation guides for, for the and an, you know, yep. Bill, let alone <laughs> Gemini. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She just liked it. Anyway, she it's a it was fun pretty. name. It's a yeah. lo- it is a pretty name, yeah. and I like the pronunciation. So, uh, that's the only reason that we're talking today, but it's a subsidiary thing. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, We met the other day at a poetry reading, and it was a poetry reading for a book that you've published, and so I'd love to know what you're working on now as a publisher, but I know you do other things too, and let's get on to those later. So what's your your current publishing project, Jim? Well, we've... um We've been publishing for a number of years. We started out um, actually with what was my second book, and I'd been traditionally published, and um, you know, with a sort of swell of self-publishing taking over, decided I would embark on a, a book that I wanted to put out myself, which I did. And um, you know, it was an extremely steep learning curve, um, and uh, but a really interesting one. And um, I, off the back of that, felt that I'd like to develop. Uh, a publishing platform really for other authors and and to do it in a way where it was something in between the realms of being traditionally published where really all the control is taken away from you as an author yeah as an author Um, and in in certain scenarios you don't necessarily get fairly rewarded for your time Um, so that versus the self-publishing route where you are um, not necessarily fairly rewarded for your time either <laughs> but you have to invest huge amounts of time because everything is a steep learning curve and and understandably having not done it before you don't necessarily know what you're doing or whether or not you're making yeah. the right choices um, and and you know to really help people help if, um, people to avoid putting out what I call um, you know homework projects books that don't look like books really they're sort of cobbled together and it, they've self-published but not in a way that they're where they're going to be taken seriously by the industry um, and so um, I launched uh, Live Consciously Publishing and uh, we we sort of started off gently really and, and Judy Prescott who's book launch we met at um, was um, really our first author um, in it's that a capacity. fabulous book by the way it is it's, it's a, a great book, book. Yeah. and 
Judy was in an earlier podcast, which is how we met. Oh, wonderful. And by the way, in terms of the professionalism of publishing, yeah. it's a beautifully produced book. Thank you. And the idea that it's anything other than completely professional is quite foreign to me as a reader. I yeah. mean, it was in the best sense. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, and that was one of our intentions, to, to guide authors through the process, to, to still give them... It really, in a way, we're operating under a joint venture agreement. So, um, in terms of that, our authors invest in the project yeah. financially and their time, but they get it's you know they get a fair reward off the back end as well. Um, and so that way, we share our expertise. We also share our time and, and guidance. Um, and so, it's um, it's a really rewarding way of working. And uh, we have a, a, a bunch of projects coming up actually, but the, the most immediate one that we have coming <laughs> is called the Facebook Diet. 50 funny signs of Facebook addiction and ways to unplug with the tech detox. The Facebook Diet. Now, I have to tell you that I got here early today because of the bus thing. The, I can hardly recommend the rapid series of LA Metro buses, particularly the 720, which in the afternoon scoots over from downtown to the west side very quickly. Anyway, I, yeah, I think, oh, did I steal I yours? That's mine. No, no, no. I hope that's so, yours. Yeah, I, I hope I'm the old one. That makes sense. Yeah, yours is warmer. Yeah. That's right. I scooted over on the 720, and as soon as I got here, guess where I went? My F word page. <laughs> <laughs> and then the L word, the LinkedIn thing. Oh yes, absolutely. So, why is this book needed and how can it help people like me? <laughs> well, uh, as we've all seen, Facebook has taken over our lives in a way that we weren't perhaps prepared for. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to look at some statistics over the last few days. 48% uh, of us check Facebook before we even get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> Um, oh, quite high. Um, I do clean my teeth first. That's that's impressive. Some people don't. I'm 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 actually one of the few. I'm, I'm in the I don't clean my teeth first camp. I have to You're in the 48, <laughs> and I'm in the 52. Absolutely. Well, and also to research the book, I have I have put my head into the um, space of being a Facebook addict and used it more and more and more and in every single which way possible to understand all the different facets of it in order to be able to, to kind of you know feed into the book. Um, but I think that, you know, Facebook actually is an incredible technology. I'm an expat, as you are, and um, one of the benefits for me is being able to see into the lives of my family and friends back home, um, literally at the flick of a button, yeah. and feel, stay connected. I mean, yeah. I still feel connected. And I've traveled all over the world, I've worked all over the world. And through Facebook, I have the wonderful ability to remain in contact with all of those people that I would never otherwise have, you know, might have heard from them once in a blue moon if I was lucky. Yeah. And now I can, you know, click on their page and, and have a sort of tour through their life and, and figure out what they're up to and maybe drop them a note. And um, I just think that's wonderful. I really do. Um, and I feel like... I mean, I think Facebook's actually done a better job than religion at actually connecting us to each other and teaching us to love thy neighbour, truly. Um, I know that it's, but you know, it has a dark side and, and there's the sort of the flaming and the trolls and the people bullying each other on it and, and all sorts of really adverse behaviours going on too, but it's really just a magnification of everything that we experience in the real world um, that takes place there. 
but um, you know I am guilty of sitting down to open my Facebook page before I've cleaned my teeth had my breakfast let the dogs out for a week you name it and finding I'm still sitting there two and a half hours later um, and I think that I'm, I know I'm not alone in that sense. Um, You're one of the 48. Yes, I am. How many dogs are there? Two. <laughs> are they? They are don't they, have their own Facebook they don't pages have... yet. No, they don't. <laughs> not yet. I say yet. I was contemplating it recently. Um, and so the book really. Um, I mean, it's it's a humour book. It's light-hearted. It's tongue-in-cheek. It's you know, it's a sort of satirical take on our addictive behaviour with social media. Um, and so. Uh, will it help people? I think it will certainly provide a, a light relief for the family members of those um, suffering with a partner who's maybe addicted to Facebook. Well, you know, <laughs> I was fortunate enough that you showed me the, some of the galleys before yep. we started recording. One can't even say taping anymore. Yep. <laughs> and it is a wonderful book. It's got great illustrations and fun examples and so on. Um, I have to ask, what, you, you've talked about the dogs not being allowed out for a week. How does your husband respond in the morning when instead of reaching over and saying, honey, I love you, <laughs> you say, get out of the way. Where's my laptop? <laughs> well, actually, the irony is that I'm usually complaining that he's, he's, he's leaned over and picked up his iPad before he's given me a kiss, so it's my retaliation. Oh, he's the original <laughs> addict. Okay. Except his is reading the news. Mine is, mine is like checking in with my friends, which ironically is a very, very good like, male, girly female boy. Like, <laughs> differentiation. Absolutely. I've got to find out what's important um, in the world. I have to connect to people I love. <laughs> And, and you know what, we have, um, we do have a, a, a sort of a general philosophy that Friday afternoon we, you know, we come home, we disconnect and we try to not be on technology till like Saturday evening, so during, certainly during the day Saturday. Um, and I find Sundays a much easier day, none of us, we don't really plug in in any way oh, on that's Sundays interesting. anyway. You know, um, for me, and I've talked to a few people about this, not thinking about the technology, but rather the day of the week, yeah. the sort of sacrosanct moment is Friday night. Yeah, definitely. Saturday night, I don't really care about actually, yep. although in this country it seems to be the big thing, but from where you and I come from, Friday night Definitely. is absolutely relax, forget about things, this is really the time, because the week has been conquered, in some sense. Absolutely, know? I agree, yeah. and, and um, there is this fantastic organisation, um, I'm not Jewish, but this organisation does come out of Jewish principles, which is the, celebrating the Sabbath, and... Um, Therefore, bringing together your loved ones on a Friday night, having dinner, and then not using technology and not really um, working on Saturday in any way. And um, they launched something called the Sabbath Manifesto, which was about unplugging at sort of sundown on Friday night and only reconnecting on sundown on, on Saturday. Um, and so we just tried it a couple of times. Thought actually, this is great. This is a really lovely way to do this and, and you know it doesn't happen every every weekend I, I found myself the other week you know sort of got to Saturday and um, I normally try to make arrangements so things are in place so I'm also not having to do phone calls and that sort of thing but suddenly I was like oh I don't know where we're going and I don't have directions and then I'm phoning them up and then I'm having to email and I'm you know checking on the sat nav and using my iPhone to kind of you know find something and, and I think that's the problem technology has become so many ways so essential to every part of our lives it's really challenging to unplug because yeah. you know i'm gonna really gonna go and get the old map out and sit in the car and no try and i know what it out. you mean not really but no let me give you one example where i think incontrovertibly it's good there's a an application mm -hmm. for the metro bus system here in la 
and I know I talk a lot about the bus and this is not the way to get a date but I'm not trying to get a date as we speak but nevertheless yeah. I've been told that when I talk about my tricycle this is not the way to get a date the other way is not to talk about buses right. but nevertheless <laughs> there is a fantastic app for the iPhone uh, which is called Where's My Bus, which I call Where's My Fucking Bus, because that's how I think about this. Absolutely. It will actually tell you where your bus is in relation to where you are now and how long it'll wait for being whatever. So I was out with a friend last night, her car had broken down. So we were able to know exactly when we had to leave the restaurant and get her on the bus to get home. Yeah. That is fabulous, and you can't have that with any kind of time to conventional timetable. You can't have that. You could, you could never have that before, right? I mean, that's wonderful. And of course, the other example you gave us is for expats to connect. I have a daughter who's in her early twenties. I don't spy on her. I kind of ask permission to look at her Facebook page. Mm -hmm. as well, I sort of do. I mean, I do spy. What am I saying? Yes, exactly. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> I have some sense of what's going on in her life. She lives in another country. Yeah. I try not to lurk or let's talk about something else. Anyway, yeah, absolutely. Is, there are some uses for this oh, that we all there's like. There's tons right? of uses. It's brilliant. I, I think that the challenge comes in, and um, I was reading an article this morning about this. Um, they found that 65 percent of college students here in America certainly report that they suffer from what's been deemed as um, disconnection anxiety, which is when you can't, you feel you can't connect through technology. So, yeah. and we really are talking here in terms of social media, um, so Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. Um, and if I think about it, I remember as a teenager, certainly if, if the, you know, if, I, if the phone, the answer machine wasn't working or I couldn't get home, I, I was stressed on some level because those, it's a time in your life when I think you're so connected to your friends and everything is about your friends. Um, and so, you know, is that a major problem? Not sure. I think it's something we've all kind of suffered from in some way growing up. I just think it's been exasperated by the fact that now there are so many ways to connect with people. Yeah. And the fact that, therefore, people are connecting more, which in a way is a great thing. Um, but there are definitely unhealthy behaviours around technology. And there is an area where people really are, you know, do have a problem and need help. Um, and this book is not really designed to do that. You know, the, the Facebook diet tips are somewhat from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> it's ironic. Yes, it's ironic. But I um, thought, flicking through it, there were lots of fun tips and ways of thinking about. Not, it's not only a fun way to spend some time reading, yeah. but it's quite stimulating to make you ponder these questions. That was the idea behind the book, really, was to sort of plant some subtle seeds of self-awareness. The idea to sort of just get you to reflect a little bit on how you're using technology, so specifically Facebook in, in this instance, and um, from that perhaps have some kind of, you know, well hang on, how much am I using this, should I be, you know, is, is my, is my behaviour healthy, um, and why am I using it, am I using it to fill a gap in where something else is missing in my life, for example, or could I be disconnecting on a Friday night and actually spending Saturday out, you know, out in the sun or going out for a nice walk or going to the gym or something, or am I just spending it in bed, you know, Facebook with my mates and, and not really moving very far. <laughs> now, in terms of this book, did you write this? 
I did, actually, yeah. You, you yeah. wrote this. Yeah. It's very funny. Thank you. What about the illustrations? <laughs> I also did those. You did the illustrations? I did those as well, yeah. <laughs> wow, congratulations. Thank you. Well, there's, a real, there's an interesting story around that. I was, um, I actually went to art college initially. And, did you? Uh, and unfortunately, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And um, in as she, 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 she died a couple of years later. But I think during that phase, I was sort of 18 and, you know, confused by life and uh, unlike most 18 years absolutely and and was I think had taken on board that um, interesting uh, idea that you know if you're an artist you're going to be eternally struggling to survive because you know the artist is a sort of poverty stricken person um, and so having taken on board this concept I thought oh dear I should go to business school instead and so I did and um remember I have fond memories of myself sitting in my accounts classes peering out the window at these art students out there who looked like they were having great fun you know filming things and doing all sorts of unproductive and better looking I'm sitting and in my, wearing better clothes uh, yeah. right? and I'm sitting in my accounts class you know <laughs> tearing my hair out over what's not prof net profit versus gross profit or whatever it might be and um, it's ironic that we're sitting here today at the LACMA actually and um, it has literally taken me 20 years to come full circle to literally picking up a, a pencil to do these the illustrations of this book. To go back yeah. to art school. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So, can I cut in for a moment and ask about your mom a bit? And yeah, please, absolutely. As with yeah. all these questions, if there's anything you don't want to answer, that's fine. Fine, yeah. But um, having done a wee bit of amateur research, uh -huh. uh, you mentioned earlier bullying. Yes. And she, she was quite a significant figure in the discussion of what bullying is. Would it be okay to she ask was, you about Absolutely, that? yeah, she was. Um, like I said, mentioned to you earlier, she was a Radio 4 journalist. And, um, back on in BBC, the... um, I should say, so um, listenership for this is 50 different countries each right. week. 50% okay. uh, of listeners are in the US with 49 elsewhere. So Radio 4 is part of the BBC and it's kind of where people with letters after their name listen. <laughs> Generally. <laughs> So, and, and she did a lot of uh, programs primarily for a radio show called Woman's Hour um, and also does he take sugar but Woman's Hour was where she did a, a program um, which was called An Abuse of Power and um, I think she'd been approached by somebody locally who had had some experiences of being bullied in, in her job and mum was sort of interested in the subject and it grew and then she did this radio program and the, uh, radio um, sorry, Women's Hour got bags and bags and bags of mail from people who wrote in saying this is what's happening to me and so she really put a name to it I think before people hadn't really workplace bullying yeah, right? people hadn't really had a, a, a term to hang on to um, and so off the back of that she did a follow up program and then she started to write uh, a book and uh, in the meantime was sort of being called out to go and speak at various places um, on the subject from universities to uh, the name now, but the um, Institute for Human Resources, that type of organisation in the UK. And she did most of this while she was coping with um, her own battle with cancer, actually, oh, really? as it so happens. Um, and uh, so she was an author, and um, the book, you know, I know it certainly helped an awful lot of people to, to get clear on what was happening to them and give them some tools to be able to stand up for themselves in that situation. Um, and since then, as we know, it's it's become a widely recognised um, subject, uh, both in the UK and internationally. Um, there was actually a, a charity that was set up in her name, the Andrea Adams Trust, and uh, they did a they started a um, ban bullying in the workplace day in the UK, which happens annually. 
and then sadly the CEO um, retired a couple of years ago and they kind of closed it down because there wasn't um, I think she'd really been the pioneer behind it and there wasn't anybody really wanting to step in so um, she she had a, a, an impact in her own way for sure yeah that's wonderful yeah. so in terms of her example as a public intellectual I'm sure that's had an influence on you yeah but when it comes to bullying what about cyberbullying if your mom were here Andrea Adams yes. were here yeah what would do you think what would she have to say about cyber? I know women don't want to be told you're like your mother but oh, no, I'd, I'd be very proud to be like my mother actually <laughs> yeah, but is it, is, I thought ultimately it was the big fear for women that I am my mother no? I suppose so I think it depends on what kind of person your mother was oh, okay. I, so right I had a good relationship with her so I'm okay and you, oh, she was a beautiful woman in, in, everyone, in every way actually oh. so yeah so lovely so, to hear you say that. Yeah. So if Andrea were here, yeah. and I guess she probably passed away before we had a notion of cyberbullying. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, she was sitting there on her word star, you know, typewriter merged into a computer with floppy disks and, and everything else. I mean, way, way before the internet, really. Um, what would she have to say about Facebook and cyberbullying issues? Mm-hmm. If she were doing a, a Radio 4 female, women-oriented program, well, she'd be interviewing people and sharing their story um, and really trying to get to the, I think, understanding the impact it has. She was very much about, rather than um, preaching or, or educating based on facts and, and um, information, getting to the heart of the story and having somebody share their story in a way where other people could actually see how that was going to impact you know, what they might be doing to someone if, if they were participating in that behaviour. I remember um, I worked in a, uh, funny enough, um, for an American company called the American Computer Experience where we ran summer camps for kids. This was in England back in the early 2000s. Um, and uh, it was basically for computer nerds who didn't want to go to normal summer camp where they were out running around in the, in the countryside, you know. discovering Exactly, because they hated that stuff. They wanted to be sat behind their computers, and that's what this company provided them the opportunity to do. And they were learning C++ programming and designing websites. Anyway, we had about 40 kids um, there for six weeks over the summer. And um, there was one little kid there who was really being bullied badly by everybody. And, of course, he punched one of the other kids. And... I was camp director, so I had to sit down with him and, and have words, except I didn't have words. I just listened to him and I just said, what, um, you know, why did you do that? And he said, because they were being horrible to me. And I said, okay, how does that make you feel? And he shared how he felt. And then um, I said, why do you think that they did this to you? And, and this kid, probably no older than seven or eight years old. And it, I mean, at full throttle, he just shouted it out at the top of his lungs, because they're bastards. And I, I just, I mean, the, the level of anger and the hurt that came out of him literally practically held me across the other side of the room. I was, you know, stunned. Wow. And, um, you know, just, just having the opportunity to see that, but also giving him the opportunity to release that pain, you know, it's, it's really important. And, and, you know, I was reading something the other day, um, where his mother was talking about her, her child's experience being bullied and I think we just don't listen to each other really to understand the level of pain that's going on and, and you know it's something I've always taken time to do with other friends' children if I've seen that there's something a little awry and, and my mum was very much like that she listened to people very empathetic she person. absolutely let people share their story um, well, yeah. and I think that's how we get to understand those subjects better um, it's not through statistics and research it's actually through really 
listening to people and, and understanding what's going on for them. And really any journalist has to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, ideally all of us would do that, but it's certainly an essential quality Absolutely. in her industry. Yeah, yeah. So just getting back to the, the book for a moment, um, the Facebook addict is going to read this or the Facebook addict's best friend or partner or parent is going to read this? Um, I, I, I see it more as a gift book. It's the kind of thing where, you know, you've got a friend who you think, you know, probably spends a little bit too much time glued to their computer or their iPhone or whatever it might be. And um, it's the sort of thing you buy them as a subtle hint as a, you know, birthday present, Christmas present, stocking filler type gift. Um, because it is funny. It's, it's not accusatory in any way. Um, and, and yet... I think that, you know, there's, what, 900 million of us using Facebook <laughs> almost daily at the moment. Um, so I think there's probably something all of us can, can gain some insight uh, by, you know, taking a look, for sure. Yeah. And when will it be out? We're talking at the moment in mid-June 2012. Yeah, um, we're actually bringing the digital version out um, in late July, um, possibly early August. And then the actual print version will come out in December. December. Now, I have to ask you this. Yeah. Is there or will there be a Facebook page promoting there the There absolutely is. <laughs> <laughs> and, ironically, a Twitter page and everything else. Um, we're actually going to be launching a, um, a separate website, which is going to be called confessyours.com, where you can come and confess your funny Facebook addiction stories. Confessyours.com, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Um, I think that, again, there's something about, you know, everybody coming. We're all guilty. I, I really believe we're all guilty. We've all got something that we, you know, you just confess to, to stalking your, you know, your daughter. No, 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 no. not for a second. And, Caitlin, and, if you're out there, honey, I no. love you. 47% of people confess to stalking their ex-boyfriends, girlfriends, partners on Facebook. I mean, we, we, it's, you know, it's something we all do. Um, and so let's make light of it, you know, yes. and, and have some fun with it. That's really the, the approach we're taking um, and and the funny thing is that the Facebook diet Facebook page um, you can't actually use Facebook in the name of a Facebook page on Facebook so it's the FB diet on Facebook um, I love that it well I will definitely befriend it <laughs> I'm going to take a, a little break here for one second and then we're going to come back and I want to talk about your publishing project more generally sure. and also some of the other work you do yeah Well, we're back live. I've just bumped into Jim Courier and Gents at Lackner. Very exciting for me, famous tennis player. Um, I guess no one wants to know about men you bump into in the Gents with famous. <laughs> Dennis Rodman, basketball player, six feet nine. I bumped into him. At least you weren't in there secretly. You didn't really just sneak off to go and check your Facebook feed, right? That wasn't, uh, oh, a, you know. Oh God! What can I say? It was the first thing I wanted to do. You know, it's it's. Well, you've already told us that the bladder of the dog doesn't matter as much Absolutely. as the Facebook hits. Getting back to the, I wanted to ask about the publishing project in yeah. in general because. It's, it looks very professional, but you're also using 
descriptors like self-publishing in it. So tell us how it works as a business model, because I think the world of publishing is having to reconsider these questions, and you've got both an artistic background and a business background. So we're giving people the opportunity really to, to be guided in a way through the self-publishing process. So our authors retain their rights, um, yet we, we guide them also through the process of, of being able to, for example, get somebody on board who would sell foreign rights for them, so that they're not, a lot of self-published authors own their rights, but they, nothing's happening with them, you know, they've got a book out there on a platform somewhere, yeah. um, but they're not actively selling that book into other territories, for example, because they don't know how. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I haven't been traditionally published, self-published, started an imprint, and also I, I actually run a, a coaching program too called Finish Your Book, and I'm always... Called Finish Your Book? Finish Your Book. So oh, I'm, I'm always actively um, researching, studying, going to events, lectures, so I, I, I've gained a, you know, pretty extensive knowledge of the publishing industry over the last eight years, and so yeah. um, we're really guiding authors and walking them through each of the steps, so, you know, most self-published authors, for example, don't even understand the traditional process of having galleys for a book and printing advanced reader copies which you send out to the industry prior to the publication date which secure your reviews which ultimately secure you um, uh, Facebook hits yeah, Facebook Facebook will, although actually <laughs> more interest from the library market interest yeah. from serious interest from the, the book buyers as well because if the book has yeah. received good reviews well they're aware of that and that influences their buying decisions and you know just putting a book out on Amazon you, you negate all of that activity um, and, and a lot of the reasons that uh, authors in my experience go for self-publishing is because they're frustrated by the timelines but they don't realize that the timeline is actually really important because, I mean, this is the kind of book that we would obviously want to get coverage in in some of the consumer magazines, um, but, you know, they have a six-month lead time, so we have to send them out advanced reader copies six months before the publication date or prior to Christmas in order for them to be able to consider it as something they would put into an issue in six months' time. And so you stick a book up on Amazon, none of that stuff happens. Um, and so you automatically sort of semi-shoot yourself in the foot. Now, having said that, there are a handful of people who have just done such a fabulous job of promoting themselves using social media and other forms and because they have an excellent product that those books have taken off in ebook form and it doesn't matter they didn't have sure, any of this stuff. Sure, sure. But the fact is in terms grey, of being say um, some places to review you like the New York Times yeah. it's almost obligatory to have a hardback. Oh absolutely example. yeah yeah definitely yeah but there are plenty of other reviewers um, where that's not a requirement but what is a requirement is that you're a recognised publisher, really, you're not yeah. self-published, yeah. um, and that you have a sort of, you know, backlist of some form, um, which we, we now do, and, you know, we have those relationships as well, so we're able to guide an author through that process, um, and give them our expertise on marketing and promotion, yeah. so rather than them sort of, you know, <laughs> randomly trying things out, we already know some of what works, and each book is different. Um, so we sort of reduce the trial and error risk for them. Um, you know, we, we run a sort of, it's almost like a cooperative marketing effort. So we'll put in some funding, they put in some funding um, to promote the book. And uh, we oversee design production of the book for them um, and, and work with them on their campaign to reach out into the, the world for the book. 
and then oh, from a back-end perspective it's I mean typically your average author as you may well know um, if you have an agent the agent takes between 10 and 20 percent depending on whether that's um, a domestic sale or an international sale and then you're expecting a, you know some kind of advance of between for most authors between 1,000 and, and sort of fifty thousand dollars there are people that get paid six figure sums but they're usually well established authors or their celebrities um, and out of that you pay your agent and then your royalties are somewhere between seven and ten percent um, we're working on more of a sort of 50 50 model um, so it's 50 percent up front 50 percent on the back end so it's, it's much more of a sort of cooperative um, activity. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you two questions related to that, actually, but I'm enormously drawn to this person eating a French fry and <laughs> want huge amounts jealous. of that plate. <laughs> oh, jealous isn't, there's no word in English language to describe what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you got the waft of the... I did, yes. The that thing that sort of hit you. Subtly tormenting me, I think, is the word, absolutely. But I think I can still remember the two questions. Uh, the first one is... You used the A word, the agent, and it struck yeah. me that you're doing something like what agents do, aren't you? Other than the pitching to you as the publisher, some of the other stuff, giving feedback on what the book needs to look like? Well, not so much. I mean, an agent really, um, and again, I've worked with lots of agents, I've, I've helped a number of my, you know, a number of people to secure an agent. Um, the agent will help you to refine your materials to some degree in order to present to publishers. But once the sale's been made, um, they're very hands-off in, in relation to what, how that book develops within the publisher. Yes. Um, right. So what we are providing is expertise on you know what needs to go on cover copy, how a book cover needs to look to make sure it sells. I mean, we will go and take our book covers and have them reviewed by buyers and bookstores and by our distributor to ensure that they are, you know, they fit with the genre, they fit in terms of style and size and that, you know, it's something that is actually going to sell on and we're not just, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, can I ask you for, a, I mean, before I get on to this other question I yeah. want to ask you, I've got, excuse me, I'm trying to ask the When Harry Met Sally question. Could I have some of what she's having? <laughs> the fries thing? Thank you, sorry. No wonder I have no girlfriend. <laughs> anyway, a subsidiary question uh, to that, without wanting to give away trade secrets sure. of your yeah. business, the book that you've written and illustrated, the Facebook diet that we've been talking about, in some sense is a natural winner because of the times in which it appears. How will you go about promoting that to either readers or distributors? Well, we actually have a distributor um, and that, that again is one of the, the benefits of going with a publisher, whether it's someone like us who, we fall under really the category of hybrid publishers, of which there are hybrid, hybrid yeah, hybrid publishing, of which there are a handful of other companies. Um, Greenleaf Book Group is one of them, Morgan James is another, and it, it's where you are in partnership with your authors. Um, so, you know, you share the investment in creating the book and you share the profits off the back end, which is different to the, the publisher who, you know, you sell your book to them and then they own it and then they do what they want with it. So there's a big difference there. And so... Yeah, I'm very familiar with yes, the latter sure model. Um, <laughs> um, and so... Um, 
question. Um, <laughs> we the promotion distribution part. Yeah, the distribution model. So, so with, um, with the Facebook diet. Yeah. You've got a distributor so already, the distributors no have, well, the, the distributors actually have relationships with the buyers. They meet annually with the, the buyers for, say, Barnes & Noble, um, Urban Outfitters, Walmart, um, Target, etc. Yep. So they, they take on a, a, a sort of sales role for us uh, in, yep. to some degree. And then from a promotional perspective, um, for the Facebook diet, certainly we are going to do a traditional PR campaign, so traditional press. Um, we actually have some really funny videos planned, um, which will hopefully engage people. Engage people actually in the confess yours activity, because you know the book is one thing, but actually you want to stimulate engagement with people, and, and we thought that was a really fun idea of getting people to engage, sharing their sort of you know funny Facebook addiction stories. Um, we're going to do an outreach onto college campuses where we're going to go and, and have people. We're going to have confessional booths that people can go in and actually share their. Sorry. Um, so and then a, social a, media. You have a network of Catholic priests across Absolutely. the country. Yes, we do. <laughs> We're borrowing for the occasion. Um, well, it's easy in Hollywood. You just go up to the, you know, Hollywood Boulevard outside the Chinese Man Theatre, and you know, you've got a whole bunch of people there who are out of work who need something to do. By the way, um, <laughs> many of these people are dressed up as superheroes, <laughs> and they beat one another up mm -hmm. to try to get attention. Yeah. Try to get a dollar off you to have your photo taken with Spider-Man hanging off a wall on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, and then uh, one of the other great ways, certainly, of, of getting free publication um, outreach is to do what's called a giveaway. So there are great websites like goodreads.com, yeah. um, where you can, Goody. as a publisher or the author, say, well, we'd like to give away 20 copies of the book, and people um, subscribe to that, and uh, they enter. And then 20 people win a copy, and the kind of deal is really you get the copy, you need to write a review somewhere, and of course it's up to them, they write whatever they want. So, you know, you can certainly give away yeah. some copies, you can run competitions, um, and then sadly we will have to embark on a, a social media campaign. Uh, <laughs> um, in a non-addictive way. Absolutely, completely. Um, so, those are the primary uh, activities. Um, and obviously we'll do a, a book launch as well and uh, it's not really the kind of book where I envision myself going out and doing speaking engagements whereas for example with Judy's book that's actually an ideal scenario for her to go out and give poetry readings and talks on the book and, and related subjects such as Alzheimer's um, for a lot of authors I think speaking engagements are actually one of the best ways to promote books yeah. certainly in non-fiction categories sure yeah. just Honing in for a moment on your experience as an author, you were saying that you've had a couple of different publishing histories, and this gets back to some of the other work you do that isn't about publishing per yeah. se. I wonder if you could tell us about your book writing experience. Sure, yeah. Well, um, I in the late 90s I actually started, um, I was working mostly in marketing and, and um, Time, I had a small business of my own, a sort of small marketing agency, and um, I started, I mean I'd done tons of writing, you know, university thesis, tons of sort of press releases, marketing copy, other things, and I really wanted to, I had a, a you know, 
desire to kind of get back to the creative <laughs> space. Yeah. Um, and it started out with writing, so I was writing freelance articles for magazines in the UK. And, um, and I had this idea for a book that related to the loss of my mother. And um, so I had started writing that book and uh, it, was a, it was a very cathartic process. Um, and because of the subject area and because I was wanting to write about uh, a subject that I didn't feel I had enough professional expertise on with relation to, to grief and, and death and dying. Um, I was studying, I'd read probably 50 books on the subject and um, I was actually awarded the Winston Churchill Fellowship, uh, which is what brought me to America. Um, and I travelled around the States and interviewed um, directors of hospices and hospitals on the subject of um, the role of love in palliative care. And so the I role of love in palliative, love in palliative care. care. Yeah. So I spent five years really writing that book because there was so much research involved. It was sort of like giving myself my own PhD, to be honest yeah. with you, without getting the letters off to my name. Um, and in the middle of that, um, very strangely, I had worked for a nutritional company as, as a marketing um, coordinator for them in my agency. And uh, the nutritionist, uh, who I had become friends with, wanted to, to write a book. And cooking is one of my passions. And I said, well, you know, she sort of happened to mention, I said, well, yeah, we could do a book together. I'd love to, you know, sort of share all my recipes because I'm always inventing new recipes. So we wrote this um, book proposal. We pitched it to a number of um, publishers in the UK. And much to our great surprise, we got a call from one of them and said, oh, we really like your idea. Would you come to London? So we sort of got on the train from Cambridge and went to, to the big, you know, big, big publishing house in London. Up to London. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, going the other way to London. Anyway, um, and uh, they said, oh, we really, we really like your idea, but actually we, we're interested in you writing this book instead and kind of dictated to us this sort of um, book that they wanted. And uh, we said yes, obviously, because they were the big publishing house. And um, that came out very well. It was translated, I believe, into four or five languages and still selling. And the name well, of the book? It's called The Top 100 Recipes for Happy Kids. How to Keep Your Child Alert, Focused and Active. So it won a contest for the most verbose title <laughs> in <laughs> world history. Indeed, yes. Um, and, uh, it's a great title. <laughs> And, and actually, I think it's probably more relevant today than it was even back then because of ADD and the children just eating crap food. Attention deficit yes. disorder. Um, so, um, Does that include the When Harry Met Sally French fries I've I just so, yeah. ordered? Because okay. the know whole idea is about eating to sustain your blood sugar level balance as opposed to eating sort of like sudden piles of carbohydrate-rich food that's going to give you a spike in your blood sugar level Sorry. and then you're going to crash. Anyway, uh, on top of two glasses of wine, but you'll be fine. We but can always call the ambulance. Aren't there <laughs> complex carbohydrates in potatoes? Not so much when fried, but normally, yes. So Jacket potatoes, good for you. My tent, <laughs> my model, my design, my hope, my prayer is that you won't suffer the worst of this. That will be somewhere between here and home on the 720 that I'll go crazy. <laughs> I'll, I'll probably learn about it from Facebook if you do though, so it'll be okay. <laughs> so um, what was interesting was in the midst of writing this um, Your Legacy of Love, which was the book about losing my mother. Your Legacy of Love. I, I was working on the top 100 recipes for happy kids and it was kind of a funny yes. scenario actually. Um, and, and it ended up with 
the top 100 recipes and begins coming out before your legacy of love, um, which did come out in 2009. So um, they were radically different experiences. Um, and then since then, I've been a contributing author on three other books that are sort of in the in the grief and loss arena. Um, and um, and it was a very honestly writing your legacy of love was a really challenging process for me um, in part because I'd written it over a five year period and so my writing style had changed quite radically um, secondly because it was such a personal book and it yes. was difficult to know how far to go in terms of revealing what had happened and, and where I was coming from on a personal level and then thirdly because I was trying to integrate this very personal style sort of almost like into sharing bits from my diary with, with what was very well researched and, and trying to make sure that the book was of a sort of journalistic quality and also not too heavy because it was such a, you know, I wanted it to be conversational and light and something that anybody could pick up and actually dive into. Um, so it was like some insane jigsaw puzzle, to be quite honest with you. And, insane uh, jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> and the final stages of writing that book, because I'd been... I mean, I just had piles. I remember one day I had my dining room table and you I had, had piles, piles and piles, piles. I did. It felt like I had piles. I was sitting down for that long trying to piece it all together. Um, you know, I had these sort of 12 chapters laid out and each one was sort of, I don't know, four or five inches high. And I was, okay, how do I take all this information now and, and turn it into a book? Um, and it was painful. <laughs> it was really painful. Um, and I think probably... From, most authors I've spoken to, um, writing certainly the first book is a challenging experience. I, I, my favourite American author is Christopher Buckley, and I went and heard him speak last week. And he made me laugh because I mean, he made me laugh a lot because he's a satirical writer anyway. But um, he said, you know, I actually find writing really hard. And uh, when I got the chance to go up to speak to him at the end, I said, so why do you do it if you find writing so hard? He said, it's all I've got. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, writing is not my natural talent uh, at all, but it's something I've developed over a period of time, and now I love to do, I really enjoy the process. Um, but I certainly wouldn't write a book in that way if I were to write something else along those lines. Um, it would be, it was a headache. <laughs> well, you used the word cathartic. Mm. It must have been immensely challenging and difficult and meaningful all at once. This grief and loss area is one you specialise in. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, I spent five years studying it, really, uh, in addition to my own experience of loss. Um, and I worked with Bruce for a period of time, the bereavement specialists in the UK. And I uh, was doing workshops around it and travelled all over the place giving talks with grief and bereavement centres. Um, and yet, you know, I, I sort of, when I was looking at bringing out the Facebook diary, I said, how do I explain that I'm sort of this, you know, grief specialist who's writing about the Facebook diet and, and you know, how this transition seems a bit odd to some people. Yet what really happened for me, I think, was in the process of writing the book and doing all of that research and immersing myself in that world, um, I kind of reached a tipping point where I really believe that when we've had a deeply challenging experience like a loss um, or any other trauma for that matter that in order to complete the circle of healing we have to take 
what we've gained from that experience and share it with others. And that can be done on any level. It can be just sitting down and sharing with a friend who's going through a similar experience. It can be writing an article for a periodical. It could be going out and giving a lecture. It could be writing a book. It could be making a video. It doesn't really matter what, but there is something about taking what you've learned and sharing it that kind of completes the circle. And for me, writing that book completed the circle. And, uh, you know, as an author, you're meant to go out and continue promoting and talking. And actually, I found that increasingly difficult because in a way, finishing the book was my, was like the final piece in that insane jigsaw puzzle. Um, but it was the final piece in the puzzle for me in relation to, I think, healing from the loss of my mother. And um, I just sort of, after that thought, you know, I want, I want, I want to choose joy. I want to choose bliss. And uh, ironically, this last book, the Facebook diet for me, really has been about living my bliss. And that was to going back to being the artist. And and in some ways, mum's, you know, shifting from being an art college to going to business school when mum was diagnosed with, with this sort of, oh, I've got to take care of myself. I have to earn money. I've got to be safe. I have to be rational and in control. Yeah, and and actually and pragmatic. You know, I've sort of come full circle, and here yeah. I am drawing pictures, oh, that's a and story. and actually being yeah. in a position now where I can sort of go back to my bliss and and really just um, still kind of be the educator, still you know help people to perhaps heal from their challenges, but in a more playful and joyful way. Well, Gemini, thank you so much. What a wonderful way for us to conclude the conversation. Absolutely. I want to extract a promise from you, if I can, which is that. <laughs> When the book's out, and it's like a lot of books nowadays, it's coming out in different stages, yeah. but let's say when it's fully out, you'll come back to the pod and share with us some of your experiences of it. And I promise I there'll be no Vidello <laughs> and no French fries. Oh well, no, I'm not coming then. <laughs> it'll just be carob <laughs> and carrot. Sound good? Yeah. Orange juice. Lovely. Lots of orange juice. <laughs> Fantastic.